This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Okay. Um, my name is Aaron Lopiansky, as you heard. I'm the, uh, the teacher at the Yeshiva Gerda Washington, Yeshiva Gola. And um, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be interactive or not, but I would prefer if you want to ask, um, clarify, contest, whatever it is, be very, very happy to make it interactive. I, uh, I've grown up with the idea that study is interactive, and therefore please feel um, uh, free to ask and so on. We're talking about tefillah, and tefillah is a challenge for everybody. Um, it's from top to bottom. It's something we do very often, something we do all the time. And I think it says a lot that boys in school have, um, I understood initiative came a lot from the student council and from people that were interested in it. And therefore, um, I think it's, it's admirable that people at least feel they would like to take the time out and so on. Um, I don't have many inspirational stories to say. Uh, it's not the point that I'm trying to, um, to help work through. I want to work through different points about where tefillah is taking us. And the topic, the way I guess the title I had titled, and it's sort of similar, was do we daven because we believe or believe because we daven? Which sounds uh, almost strange that there's another side to consider. Um, obviously, nobody's going to stand in front of a stone and talk if he doesn't believe that the stone or something behind the stone is going to help him. So it, it doesn't really seem at all as if tefillah improves our amuna. Tefillah is something which is a result of it. If I believe there's God and I need something, then I'll approach him for it. But it's not the other way around. It does make sense. But if we take a look, um, the picture's a little bit different. And try to understand a little bit what does it mean that we get a muna because we daven. I want to start with one source, um, but a very, very, um, a, a, an extremely respectable source about tefillah being something that creates a muna instead of the other way around. The source is the Rambam, Maimonides, in the Guide to Perplexed, um, part three, it's chapter 44, very, very small chapter. And he's describing the reason, the rationale of different mitzvahs. And he says as follows. He's, he says he lumps together mitzvahs such as mezuzah, kriyashma, tefillin, tzitzis, and tefillah. And he says all of these mitzvahs, um, the, the purpose of these mitzvahs is to remind you of God and that He loves you and so on and, um, and, and that we believe in God and believe in the way that in all the ways that is requisite for a believer to believe in God. All of these. Now, some of them are easier. For instance, um, Kriyashma or Mezuzah, this sort of our testimony, the, this sort of a witness. We've, we've, we've um, recorded truths, and the same piece of parchment on the door has been with us for thousands of years, and it's sort of a record in that, and it makes sense that it reinforces elements of faith. 
But davening, tefillah, that's not, it, it might be an expression of love to God, that's good, but how is it faith? And he lists this as the first one is faith. So if the Ramam says that the purpose of tefillah, one of the primary purposes is to, is it generate faith? Or create faith? Or is it keep faith? Then we need to understand what about davening is so, what about the mechanism of davening is significant enough that we, that it arouses faith and so on? Does it mean if God answers us? No guarantees he answers us. You know, yes, if every time we daven we'd ace the test, we wouldn't have tests, or maybe we'd daven more often, I'm not sure which one. But that's certainly not, uh, a, certainly not a reason for faith. There's not enough percentage statistically. We don't, we don't get, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of it's in, the, in vogue now to have statistics for prayers. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. So what is it exactly? One more source, kind of a perplexing source, that I would like to discuss in this context. The source is something called Avos Reb Nassim. A brief moment to describe what Avos Reb Nassim is. Pirkei Avos, everyone's familiar with. It is a Mishnayis, and this is the core part of the oral law, Mishnayis. And Pirkei Avos is the part of Mishnayis that deals with moral, ethics, etc. Um, in, the, in the Talmudic literature, there is a group of literature, a group of works that are quasi-Mishnah. Um, they were after the Mishnah was canonized or sealed. They are called Tosefta, Brisa, etc. Those are names for it. It's something which halachically has a higher standing than the Talmud, lesser standing than the Mishnah, usually serves to flesh out the Mishnah and to sort of give some more bits and pieces. Uh, most of you are familiar more in the Talmud itself, in the Gemara itself, it's brought in and discussed. Very rarely, very few people actually study it as such. But Avos, Pirkei Avos, has its section of Brisa, and it's called Avos Reb Nassim. It is printed in the Talmud in the volume of Avodah Zarah, where, where Avos is printed and so on. There's the following story. Rebel Yezah Godel was on his deathbed, and his students came in to visit him. And they said, teacher, our teacher, our rabbi, teach us one of your teachings. In other words, I would like you to, we would like you to hear your final moments, something that is your teaching. One point, I guess, that sums up or encapsulates your entire life. I won't go into it, but Rebel Yazagal was one of the most fascinating Tanoim. He came from nowhere. He got a late start, like Rabbi Kiva. He was Rakiva's Rebbe, and he's a very, very, very rich and fruitful life with a lot of teachings. And he asked Rebel Yazagal to teach us one thing. So he told them, Be careful with other people's honor. And when you're praying, do Beware in front of whom you're praying. This will help you reach Olam Haba. Now, the first thing we notice, they asked for one lesson, and he got two. Real Jewish. You asked for one, and he got two. So, obviously, the two are somewhere two sides of the same idea. It's a concept that expresses itself in 
two facets. That's, that's the way that makes sense because, you know, we're talking about a very serious moment and you say we want to have one thing we can remember and that will give us our whole, it, it will put all of your teachings into perspective. So, so my guess would be that even though you said two things, respect other people, didn't say love other people, said respect other people, and he said when you daven, remember from who you're standing. But I would like one point further to, to look into this, to look into one more point. He said this on his deathbed. This was the final teaching. It's not a repeat. He never said this before. This is the first time and only time that it's mentioned in his name. Which means that something about the moment of dying, something about that framework of him on his deathbed in his final moments saying if there's one teaching that can lead a person to um, to something great, it's this. Why? It's, it's extraordinary. We, we need to, this is a great man's life culminating on one point, and, and, and it's this point, this teaching, or teachings. So I would like to discuss a little bit, and let's talk about a little bit something about Amuna. Amuna is one of the challenges of our generation. It is usually understood that the challenge of Amuna is proving the great issues that modern science has raised, um, the conflicting ideologies, and each one very, very strongly putting forth its position and proofs and ideas. And we think that that is the reason why we have some problems with Amuna. It definitely does create problems. It's not, I mean, I'm not going to deny it, but I think it's much, there's a much deeper point than that. When we think, when our mind takes in information and we need to rate it, true, not true, I would, I would say there are two types of information. If someone were to tell me um, someone to tell me that um, there are no two, there are no billion people living in China. Actually, it's only a hundred million people, and it's all a lie, and it's all fluffed up, and so on and so forth. I would deny it, and I would say it can't be. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm not conspiracy theories don't run that that. And the person would argue and prove and prove and argue, and I might actually, um, I might actually be inclined at some point to start downing. Maybe, maybe I was never there, I don't know, I'm not, I don't know. But, you know, if someone were to tell me something much less important, that the Hebrew Academy is not on Arctic Avenue, um, I, I, would, I would defend it to the end. <laughs> and why? I, I mean, is, it's not just because I saw it and I know it. It's a different type of reality. I would say there is knowledge and there's reality. Personal experience has made something very real to me. And ideas, proven as they might be, they're there. It's just like a kid. When a kid hears from a teacher that this and this chemical is dangerous, don't touch it, don't mix it with something else, don't work without gloves, without goggles, that. Does, he, does he really think that the teacher is not telling the truth? But when he's actually been 
in a mishap with it, it's very, very different. Um, the Holocaust, you can prove it from day till tomorrow, but it's very different when it's proven or, what, or when you've been part of it. Um, it's, it's something that is, works in two separate, if I were to use a contemporary muscle, I would say it's like on the computer, you have a hard drive and you have RAM. The stuff in the hard drive is available for plucking, but the computer's got to walk into the hard drive, pull out the stuff, and bring it in. The stuff in the RAM is what it's working with. It's, it's active. It's going now. So a human being has knowledge, facts, and experience. I want to use somebody's description of this in a very, very powerful way. This person was Jewish, but not religious. But one of the most powerful descriptions of this phenomenon, this person's name was, I'll probably tell you the name, you don't know who it is, and I'll tell you her pen name. You probably, um, her name was Rachel Blobstein. The, in contemporary Hebrew literature, she's known as Rachel HaMeshoreret. And if you've taken Ivrit, well, or, and she was a woman who was a pioneer. She was a chalutza on a kibbutz in, in, on the Kinneret, very, very kind of romantic soul and very taken up with it. She had, um, she had tuberculosis and slowly she became more ill and more ill. She couldn't work it anymore. She ended up in Tel Aviv, dying and died in Tel Aviv. And as she was laying on her, you know, dying bed in Tel Aviv, she penned a poem which had become very famous in Israel, and it's called V'ulai lo hayud varim me'olam. Maybe it never existed. And a very short poem she writes, you know, she says, maybe I never got up in the morning to work the fields, maybe I never sweated under, under the sun, schlepping um, uh, sheaves and stuff like that. And she said, you know, the Kinneret, Maybe it never existed, and maybe it's just all a dream. That's the, the song. It's a very, very moving song, and it's been, I don't know, it's been in Israel, it's been uh, sung dozens by dozens of singers. It's a very famous song. I, I would like to sort of, I, I would like to sort of step in her shoes and get a sense of what's going on. Is this person doubting the facts? But as long as you're experiencing something, it's part of it, you. And, it, and it's not memory. It's not in the RAM. It's not, the, it's not in, the, in, in, in the hard drive. It's not there. It's here. It's me. Um, when you move away from it, you have no contact with it. You're not involved with it. It's there. Then it's, it's somewhere there. And could be, could be not. If someone were to tell them, sit me down and bang into my head, that China doesn't really exist. I, I've somebody, some comedian on TV once got up and asked, does anybody know anybody from Wyoming? And nobody's, anybody from Wyoming? No, does anybody know her? No. Well, I, I think Wyoming does not exist. I think it's just a fake, it's just made up. And you know, it's a cute, cutesy kind of thing, but it, it is because if, if it's not me and not part of me, okay, you know what, ideas are up for grabs. Experience is real. So we have over here, a, a phenomena that human connection works slightly through ideas and a lot through experience. I'd like to now apply it a little bit to tefillah and then we'll come round and <coughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come round to the, to the points that we started with. 
Um, when a person has a Muna, we have a Muna, we sat down once upon a time, we grew up from, we sat, we heard a lot of good arguments, everybody we know is kind of religious, and it's good, and it's fine, and it's wonderful. That's up here someplace, and anything up here is, is, is um, it's open for discussion. And, you know, if, if, a, if, if I get another pounding one direction, another direction, or I don't need a pounding. If, if I just get lost in life, and I'm not connected to it, I begin to have that same type of feeling that Rachel Amshorev was expressing. Maybe just a dream, maybe just a kind of a childhood phenomenon just passed by, because it's not part of me. And mitzvahs reinforce it minimally, because mitzvahs are something that I'm doing because I was told to do. So it does create a connection to God, but, but it's a sort of a backhanded connection. I was told to put on film, so I'm putting on film. I was told to say Kriyashma, say Kriyashma. Tfila is unique in that it is the in, the, in the framework of a mitzvah, it is the time when I can connect with the other. It, the mitzvah is to connect with the other. Very, very different. And the, 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 um, it's the first time that a person can have a personal sense of being connected. Now, it's, what I mean to say is, it's not if I start out as an atheist and I pray I'm going to believe. That's absurd. But if I start out believing, then prayer will turn my belief, which was just kind of knowledge and ideas, into experience. And it becomes something real to me. So I will at some point possibly cave in and if somebody smart, a lot smarter than me, argues, and especially if I have a dozen people arguing that, that um, China doesn't exist, at some point I'm going to start shaking. But that the academy is on Arctic Avenue, it's going to take, I'm, you, you, you're really, really going to have to torture me for me to start thinking not like that. And it's not because one is more important or because I can muster more proofs to it. It's just this is reality to me, and that's ideas. So if we want the reason why faith is not firm by us, because it's not so much part and parcel of our lives. Until <coughs> we were fortunate enough to come to the States, and I, and I, and I yes, we're fortunate to come to the States, we're fortunate to live in a society that's open and gives us so many opportunities. But when Jews lived under very difficult and oppressed conditions, then God was always there. It was clear to me that I'm a Jew, <coughs> and it's clear to me that I'm part of a special people. And it's clear to me that if not for God, we all would be butchered out. And it's clear to me we had a very imminent sense of God in a way that we don't have it um, when things are easy. Um, it's not that we would like to go back to that type of life, but at least understand where the challenge comes from. The challenge comes from we don't connect to God in a typical day enough or at all. And not in a day and not in a year. And then one way we wake up and a small thing comes our way. A little small nothing floats in. And then I say to myself, you know what? 
and maybe you know it's kind of a kid and it was a religious setting and everybody was kind of nice and religious and that's it but maybe it's all doesn't exist and arguments are not going to do it for you because arguments don't affect real life experience so Akarish Baruch who gave us a, a very very central pillar of religious experience the only thing that we can call an experience a religious experience is prayer everything else we do because religious and it and it and everything else uplifts us in many ways but the, the turning to God and saying you is only possible in prayer in mitzvahs it's him he told us I'd like to go back to the point that Rabbi Lazar made to his students. I'd like to explain it, and I'd like to get a little bit of sense of the depth of it and how it relates to us. His students came in and said, we want a lesson for life. Now, we are self-centered. Everybody's self-centered because everybody is himself. No two ways about it. When we have relations and friendships, we can have them in two ways. One is, I really like Yankel, Chaim, Dvorah, Shoshana, whatever it is. Why do you like him? So much fun to be around with him, her. It's so much, it, it, you know, there's a lot to learn from him, her, whatever it is. Well, so is it the other person or is it me? When you like someone else a lot, does that mean you care about him or it's entertaining? There are comedians I like. Would I do anything for them? No. I, I just like to hear them. They're funny. There are speakers that I like. Would I do something to them? No. I mean, I might pay a ticket to go to a concert or something, but nothing for them. I don't have anything for them. It's, it's, it's me. It's all about me. The relationship of the other that really expresses where there's an other is respect for the other person. In other words, I don't think he or she will feel comfortable. There's respect, is, love is very, very obscure what the relationship is. Is it a taking relationship or is it a taking and giving relationship? Mm -hmm. Not clear. When you respect the other person, meaning I get nothing out of it but for him, it's, it, he deserves his place, that focuses me on the other. In mitzvahs, it's the same thing. We tend to look at mitzvahs as all about me. If we're religious, we believe mitzvahs make us better people, nobler people, more inspired people. Fine, it's true. But again, it's all about me. The only place the, 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 or I should say the primary place in the world of mitzvahs where there is an other is in tefillah. And that's why when we're facing, um, when we're, we're interacting with Hashem, there is the other there. It's not about God, it's to God. So Rebeleza Gadol and this is the extraordinary beauty of the Brisa, telling us something there was only, as a person lives, when a person lives, he's focused around himself, and that's what he is. 
But when he begins to move on to the next world, he all of a sudden begins to perceive the other with a capital O. And it's a very different picture on all of life. So he's saying, if you want to, um, if you're asking me the sum total of my life as I'm standing on death's threshold and beginning to lose myself, what are the two things that come out? Where are the two others? One is the other person. I no longer will enjoy the other person's humor or, or, or um, it, and, you know, uh, wit or whatever it is. But what about what did I do for the other person? And did I ever take God into my life? Wearing a kippah is nice, wearing tzitzis is nice, they remind us about God. But was there ever a moment when he, I was with him, there was a sense of the other? So he didn't tell them to be careful with prayers. Take a listen, listen to the way the Chachamim coined the words. They put so much wisdom into the words. They said, When you do know, in the moment that you're davening, know in front of whom you're standing. Because that's the central element of the prayer, is to whom you're davening. And that gives you that sense of connection. <coughs> so let's sort of um, get a little bit, let's wrap up the points and, and, and uh, I guess sort of flesh them out. What we're trying to say is that in the commandment of faith, and the Rambam says faith is, we're commanded leda, to know, and the word leda doesn't mean to know uh, uh, mentally, because you can't command somebody to know mentally. I can't tell you, I command you to know that there's a God. It doesn't make any sense, because if I don't think there's a God, then commanding me is not going to help me get to it. And if I know there's a God, it's not going to make any real change. So what I need, w the word that Rambam uses is leda. I'm commanded to become aware. The word leda is a word that means knowing in a, in a personal, experiential way, rather than knowledge intelligence. If you would like a place in Tanakh where this word is used like that, let me tell you a, a, a place where it's interesting. Yiftach asked certain people to help him go to war. They politely refused him, and they said, you, you fight your own battles, I'm not going with you. He said, okay, when I come back, I think it was Anshe Sukkos, I will personally make you acquainted with the thorn bushes. In other words, you'll get a very intimate knowledge of the thorn bush, meaning he'll whip them with the thorn bushes. Yadir, everyone knows a thorn bush hurts, but making somebody's flesh acquainted with a thorn bush means that you will feel it in, 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 the, most, in the deepest experience possible. So Emuna is more than anything else for the person who already is observant, religious, believing, grew up believing, knows it, 
he's not the mitzvah of belief is all about taking what we called the, the hard drive information and moving it onto the RAM. You need a lot of memory in the RAM to do that, but that's the that's the that's the avoda. That's what he's supposed to do. Of all of the different religious activities we do, the one that most fundamentally brings this home is tefillah. Because tefillah is the mitzvah of interacting with God. That's an extraordinary experience. We could not do that. We could sit and run around. We could sit and talk. We could sit and text. We could not use tefillah. We could be very perfunctionary about it and just kind of mutter the tefillah and that's it. And then we, have, and then we complain that, you know what? Um, when we don't feel inspired. Um, we, don't, we have doubts. Well, of course you have doubts. If you, if you're, the longer you're out of touch with somebody, the less the person's existence is real to you. And, and the less you actually are inclined to feel strong about the person's existence or anything like that. Very similar to that poem that we read. It's a very, very moving experience where you're beginning to lose sense of all the things you've experienced. God forbid if anyone knows people who have Alzheimer's um, uh, and or that, you know, that type of illness of dementia, what makes these people extremely agitated is things that they sense as being real, other people laugh and question. And, and you know, when, when somebody questions my knowledge bank, I don't, I'm not so bothered. Because, okay, maybe I was right, maybe I was wrong, we can talk and debate. But if somebody will tell me that this is not Hebrew Academy, so I will, I will be very, very agitated. What's, what do you mean? How could, how could you say something? You know, this is real. Tefillah is the element of religious interaction that makes it real because it's a personal experience with God. And Rebel the great Tana, his final instruction was learn to relate to the other. Tfila, the core part of Tfila is that there is an other. There's a God there, and that's, what, and that's what you have to relate to. I think that if, we, if we'll figure out how to do it, and understand, the first thing is to understand what we're doing. Understand that when you're davening, you are experiencing God. And you need to make it possible. It's just like if, if you're with a friend and you're texting to, to a second friend and talking to a third friend, you'll never have a, a real friendship because you're busy. There's too much going on. Um, you can't complain that at some point your faith begins to shake in and to loosen because, of course, if it's not experienced, it fades away. Tefillah is to experience that, and as the Rambam says, the purpose of tefillah, first and foremost, is to reinforce our emuna, because emuna is built and developed by experience, not miracles, not arguments, not proofs. Those, those are needed to allow you to establish relationship. If somebody, uh, there are a million, there are billions of people in the world, I'm not going to go over and be best friends with each one. Someone will introduce me to so-and-so and say, this person is really worth your acquaintance. But the acquaintance itself has nothing to do with information about. It's experience. We should be able, let us, let everybody use his own understandings, 
and his own um, sense of things to make that a, a meaningful experience. And we will find that Amuna flows from prayer and not only the other way around. Any comments, questions, anything anybody would like to? Okay, I guess it's time to pray, or what time? Yeah, we have a few minutes. So, so if anybody would like any questions or whatever it is, I... Uh, Okay, I guess we're. You would what? Not yet. Not yet, okay. But I I, I want to tell you one one of the things they do in um, in psychology courses at, at certain points one of the famous uh, one of the demonstrations of what crowd um, I guess uh, dynamics does is the teacher will make two lines on the blackboard and clearly one of them is larger than the other and there'll be one victim who's not in on it and the teacher will say well we're going to you know do perceptions and so is this larger or that larger and you go around and everybody will say the shorter line is longer. And then they get to the poor guy who's the quote unquote, it, it call him either the victim or, or the uh, case and study. And people have a dilemma. Uh, you know, they clearly see one thing to be right, but on the other hand, they're very, very, A, you don't want to be a fool, and maybe there's something wrong with you, and maybe you just don't want to be the guy out. There are a lot of reasons to sort of, and, and it's a sort of you struggle. And then if you say, if, if you're brave enough to say, well, I think this is longer than that shorter, and everybody will say, oh my gosh, what's wrong? You need new glasses? Are you kind of, are you the guy who likes to be the opposite of everybody? This and that. And you can go through quite a bit of, of this um, torture, or, or um, however you want to call it, and until you do it. But uh, when a person gets a, when a person has a type of understanding that is very firm, you don't bend. And it's one of the reasons uh, it, there's, there's a famous, um, uh, uh, what's the right word to say, a kind of dialogue. It's said over the name of Jonas and Ibeshitz, where a Christian friend of his asked him, how can you Jews retain your faith when there are so many times more Christians in the world? Muslim didn't even count in those days. And your Torah says that you follow the majority. So shouldn't you be following the majority? That's, that's what your own Torah says. And he answered that that law applies when you're in doubt. When in doubt, you follow the majority. When you have no doubts, you don't follow the majority because there never was a doubt. <coughs> Rove, a majority, is only something that's there when you don't know, you, it makes sense probability. A majority is probability. But um, when something is absolutely true, it doesn't help. He says, we don't have doubts. But to get to that, proofs are only, every proof is always waiting to be rebuffed. That's the nature of, 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 of knowledge, of science, of, of, of any type of ideas. There's proofs and counter proofs and development. Yes? What's the best, what, like, if, like, all these, like, proofs don't look, like, 
aren't the best way to prove, like, or to, like, show yourself that Judaism is, to increase your, protect your faith, how are you supposed to be able to pray on a high level and be able to retain that faith when it's just not hard to work on? Good question. Very good question. Um, <coughs> most things in life, we deal with what we feel comfortably so. For instance, medicine is always developing. And you know for sure that in 10, 20, 50 years for sure, a lot of medicine that we have today will be gone. Um, I, you know, I remember I'm not that old, and I can tell you tons of things. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, if somebody would have dared, I, I, I remember I did a report on it, if somebody would have dared suggest that ulcers are caused by bacteria, he would have been thrown out, he would have been flunked. Um, today, yeah, you tr it is a bacteria, and so we know a lot of things. But if you, if it, but it, you can't live your life and say, well, how can I trust my doctor? Maybe he's going to be wrong. He will be wrong some things. You need to have a healthy sense of, okay, I'm starting this as a given. It's fair. It's comfortable. I have some issues, but um, I need to start with what I have and I feel comfortable with and build on that. And that's why what's more important for us is to build a relationship rather than to say, could I ever, ever absolutely positively be sure? It's, it's because you could never get a job. Are you ever absolutely positive sure it's the best job? You could never get married. Are you ever absolutely positive sure it's the best person? I, I know that you're supposed to say that, but down deep, there's no such thing. Yes? So then are we just, um, so according to that premise, are we just um, going on with Judaism because that's what we're born with, and that's what we already kind of started out with, and so it's easiest just to um, continue to believe that. Well, in every in every thing that a person considers, in any intellectual pursuit, you start with a given, and the intelligent person is open-minded, but he's not empty-minded. In other words, if somebody will come and tell me, um, I think uh, antibiotics have killed people more than helped. I can't say it's absolutely not true, but I can say, I mean, in assuming that I, that I know enough about the subject, I'm willing to listen, but you've got a big job to prove. A any, anything we, we start, we have to start. Life, uh, you know, life starts with givens, and it's, it's intellectually correct to start with the givens. It is intellectually wrong to be stuck on the givens. But so, th so that's why we start a certain way, we are comfortable with it, and n now we're comfortable intellectually, emotionally, and so on, and we need to build with it. We will come across issues, challenges, and questions, and it's right to address them. Well, I have a friend of mine, uh, my first cousin, he's a very brilliant physicist, and he was uh, once in our house, and he said that he was portraying some of the real issues with some of the fundamental theories of contemporary physics. And my brother was sitting and said, so why don't they drop the theory? So he said, it's worked 10,000 times in places, and it's not, that the, it's, not that the, it's not that the challenges aren't real, but I need to have a proportion. It has worked awfully well in so many places, so let's figure it out. Um, we, we come with 3,500 years worth of experience. Um, it doesn't mean it's absolutely right. The, nothing is absolute. But from being, from absolutely right to absolutely wrong, it's a very, very large uh, 
respect. Okay. Yes. Everybody, this was nice to be gentle. We're going to head downstairs to the open venue.